What's up, gifted family? Welcome to another episode of the show that is the GP YouTube. Just a reminder that if you support what we do here, make sure to go over to giftedperformance.com and sign up for our automated coaching service. For only a dollar a day, you'll get access to 15 highly customized training programs, a macronutrient calculator, our meal planning feature that lets you build and save meals based on your macros, as well as access to our private Facebook group. All subscriptions help us in continuing to put out great content to get you to your fitness goals. Thanks for stopping by, and without any further delay, let's get into today's video. Enjoy. All right, welcome back to a special episode of the Coach's Corner, Coach's Q&A, the Gifted Performance Podcast, whatever we're going to call it today. I just switch it up every single time. Two guys that we see a lot of, Cameron Cheek and Paul. How are you guys doing? Great. Doing well. well. Look at him. Feeling Cam's girthy. got a new haircut, and Paul's feeling extra girthy. And a special guest for the day, Dom Dominic, Mr. Kuza on the podcast. Thanks for coming on. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. Are you Sometimes staying safe on the streets of <laughs> Michigan? Yes, we are. We're not allowed to leave the house. <laughs> no, stay inside. Do you have a home gym? Uh, no. No? Oh, my God. He's wasting no. away. He's That's going why he's insane. talking in a hoodie. He's like, I can't let them see me. <laughs> he said he no. missed the tank top memo, but, but he deliberately avoided the tank top I memo, to. I think. <laughs> I had to. He didn't want to make us feel All bad. right. Cool. So today we're just going to be talking mostly about some general contest prep issues, questions for Mr. Kuza here. Because he is a contest prep specialist, go ahead and visit his Instagram at Team Kuza to see some of the crazy, crazy results that he gets people. But before we dive into the questions, let's kind of, I want to give you a chance to introduce yourself to the people, kind of give me the Dominic Kuza story, education, certification, experience, your own competitive history. Birthplace. Tell me, tell me about your life in bodybuilding. Uh, yeah, so um, well, we can start with like education. Uh, I was actually going to go to dental school and uh, I Yo, took my- Same. Really? Seriously, I wanted to be an orthodontist. Yeah, so um, <laughs> I took my DAT. Um, I actually got- interviewed waitlisted and then accepted and i didn't end up going because i was just over it at that point um but so my bachelor's is in biology uh bachelor's of science i have a minor in human physio and then uh, my master's was in exercise physiology and then uh, i have a nasm uh, personal training certificate i personal trained for a few years and uh i also did their uh fitness nutrition specialist program too so that's uh a lot of education in physio that was my thing that i liked the most um and i was doing that more so because i just liked uh i liked health so much like even now with everything going on i even like the medicine side of stuff like all the medical talk and all the medical um like you know just that kind of physio too not so much always about exercise so that's one thing that's why i did the minor in physio a lot of it was medical physiology that i was doing in my undergrad right on and you're like fuck this shit i'll just tell people how to get huge <laughs> yeah that's it being a doctor's hard 
I mean, doctor's <laughs> so you, hard and costs a lot. <laughs> if you had to go back to school and maybe pursue a PhD, do you think that you would go more the kind of like public health route since that's something that interests you? Uh, yeah, probably. Um, I would do it in, I would do it in exercise physio probably still because there's a few programs in Michigan that have it um, just so that's my core. But I would focus more on public health, I think, in the long term kind of goal situation. But um, it's just something I like so much. Like even now with all this stuff going on, I just brushed up on all my medis medical physio and, you know, just tried to think of things to help people along with just general health. Right on. Um, so your competitive history, you do a lot of coaching, of actually, I don't really know how your split is with your, with your business and your, in your coaching, do you coach mostly competitors? Or are you more on mostly the general fitness side? I'm about, I'm about 60 general fitness, 40, um, competitors, about like 60% and 40%. Um, my competitive okay. history, I've, I've competed twice in 2017, 2018, um, 2019, I got married, so I decided not to compete. Was going to compete this year, but the way things are looking, it was not the right call. Um, but that's so far my competitive history with, with shows and stuff. Um, I've been getting people ready for shows since 2016. Uh, right on. Just, that started with just like one guy doing it for free, having fun with it, with him just kind of you know learning along the way together. And then, um, then it just slowly snowballed into what it is today. Yeah, I think that's kind of how we all started, right? Cam, you started for free. Yeah. Paul, but, did uh, you did you start the same way? I I think I handled like a client or two for free, but I started. Uh, I I charged pretty early on, just like something that wasn't worth it, like fifty. Paul was trying to get rich. <laughs> Were you gonna say, Cam? Oh, I was going to ask Dom, uh, after doing that first prep and stuff, what made you realize, like, oh, this is something I actually really want to do and continue doing? So, growing up, I was, uh, I played soccer, and uh, we really didn't weight train a lot. And then two of my best friends were a football player and a wrestler, and they weight, were weight training a lot. They got me into the gym and stuff. And then I did that first show, and I was always, like, the chubbier kid. I always, like, had... You know, the, the, the smaller stomach, the lower, the lower back fat and all that. Um, and doing that first show, I was like, oh, oh, my God, I could I actually did this. Like <laughs> I got to what I thought I could never look like so that I just got hooked after that. Yeah, because then like everything like in the gym, you always compare to your prep look and you're yeah. like, if you have a six pack, but it's not with veins, you're like, I'm fat. <laughs> that's all so, of it man the day you started lifting that's the day you're forever small the day you get really yeah, late you're always sure. fat you're like, always fat <laughs> so that was kind of when you first got into training right you met you linked up with your friends that played football and, and wrestling and you started resistance yeah. training do you have any like do you have any memories that you look back on really fondly of, of how you trained back then were you were you evidence-based from the start or were you max out or die because there is well, no in between. I, I, we we followed a lot. <laughs> we followed a lot of his football training, so it was okay. all max out till you die kind of thing. And Hell yeah. it was it was always chest on Mondays, you know, stuff, 
stuff like that. And but, doing cleans to get huge for no reason. Yeah, doing power cleans and stuff. And I had a little taste of uh, CrossFit working out for like a month. And then I realized that I'm not made for this. <laughs> I, I, I feel like no one is really made for the CrossFit. You watch like even the CrossFit games and you're like, wow, these guys are dying. I don't even think that they're made for it anymore. <laughs> they just throw them I'm like, the I'm like... I'm like three months into it, and it's like I'm gonna get fit any of these days now. This is gonna hurt a lot less any time now. And so far, you see, you see no the ice. competition recording. They just throw them in giant ice buckets. They're like yep. putting them back together on tables and shit. All that like tape, literally tape to hold them together. <laughs> I think uh, uh, Jerry Mangine is doing a lot. He he did some research around CrossFitters at Kennesaw, right? Yeah, I, I actually got into that. Uh, with them because you know all the professors there were into crossfit so they did crossfit research and that was the closest i could get to doing bodybuilding related research you know so paul, paul <laughs> is a confirmed crossfit researcher put it in his ig bio ifbb pro aspiring plus crossfit researcher like one of the first papers i wrote on was like the hypertrophy outcomes after like 16 weeks of crossfit none none <laughs> negative <laughs> All right, cool. So let's actually dive into some of the questions that we had today. Uh, just some good roundtable discussion here. I'll throw it out there and then you have to raise your hand. Just kidding. Just talk over each other as much as you want. Um, our first question is going to be the biggest differences in physiologic response when you transition from a conservative fat loss phase. So say something like a five to 10% body weight reduction in a eight to 16 week time frame compared to a full on contest prep. So once you hit that kind of five to 10% body weight loss and you need to get into that next gear to get yourself striated glutes, veiny abs, like you said, what are some of the, the physiologic responses that you see within the body that maybe stall some of that progress? Dom, I'll let you start. Yeah. So, um, so transitioning from that, I feel like, um, physiologically i i see a lot of guys stall from like maybe too big of a push initially um like I, their body's getting used to this consecutive small amount of weight loss um i would i would probably hesitate on such a big immediate push um but like i know cam likes doing like big pushes like that like we've talked in the past um just like for me i kind of see them not having those stalls if I just keep things steadily going and then implementing like a refeed just to get like a little of that dietary stress off of them and just keep that pace going because if they were losing at a good rate, I kind of don't want to mess that up at that point. Yeah. Cam, and you can kind of talk through your methodology with why do you like to see a fast? Cause I'm the same way. Why do you like to see a faster rate of loss in the beginning? Uh, not necessarily that I want to see a faster rate of loss in the beginning. Now there's circumstances where I would want to go for that, but it's more so just ensuring that we're shifting from uh, a hypercaloric state to hypo. Cause sometimes I feel like when you start a diet with some people, especially those whose food gets really elevated uh, relative to someone else at that body weight, you can kind of chop off food at first, e even if it's like, you know, a, a good decent chunk and it's still things really aren't moving that well for that person when their food is that high and i've noticed sometimes just going ahead and like okay we know for a fact we're in a deficit here um and go ahead and chopping things off and you know if 
they end up dropping too much or you pull off too much, you can always just slowly just add back in a couple a couple calories or, you know, macros, whatever you want to add that next week and maybe like reverse diet for two weeks, but you're still going to stay in deficit. Have you noticed right that Dom at all before? Sometimes those people that yeah, do just get super like, elevated, you just got to like start chopping at food before things Yeah, you got to take like big, like 12, 15% <clears throat> like chops at yeah. their food. And like, and then, and then like you said, if they drop way too fast, you can always add food back. But you're, you have a good point there with like guys that, you know, are, have really high food or stuff and, you know, like a 7%, 8% cut isn't going to do it. Like you need to pull even more out of them just to get them moving in the beginning. But if it's too fast, you can always pull back on stuff. Um, so that's, that's, that was a, that's a really good point. Yeah. I think some of those guys that, you know, you're necessarily like metabolic furnace humans, I think they're really just like adaptive machines. Like I think yeah, they yeah. just adapt super well to everything. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Like Paul said, and I've seen that those who adapt really well on the way up, they also adapt very well on the way down. They seem to have these metabolisms that are super, super flexible to the fluctuations that you throw at them. You throw them a bunch of food, they just end up moving around like crazy. You cut their food and their movement just completely ceases and you have to make these these big cuts to food. But Dom, I'd be curious to know, um, do you think it's safer? So for someone who has like a higher body fat percentage, would you say it's safer for them to lose at a faster rate earlier on? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think so because they have so much stored energy with their body fat being that high that you're not really going to cut into lean body mass too much faster than if somebody was starting out leaner and just and you you have more to, you have more to get off of that person. Yeah. So yeah. taking a faster approach in the beginning, getting them down and you're still not, you know, crossing over to where you could be eating up some muscle mass. You can always, you know, refeed back and stuff, but getting them initially to start going, you have to, you, you have to push it out the gate with them. I think so, at least. Paul? Yeah. So I think there's positives, obviously, to both. And I think in a perfect world, I would love to always take kind of Kuza's route um, of, or what I'm assuming you think is a favorable route from what you said, the slower kind of pace fat loss and just making sure things are continually and gradually moving. Um, because, you know, I think that just anecdotally, I've noticed people tend to hold a better look, maintain muscle mass better. And you also give the opportunity potentially, especially if somebody is enhanced uh, for some sort of recomp to happen by not doing the more drastic fat loss. But, you know, it's not a perfect world. And sometimes you don't know exactly how much somebody has to lose. And it can be helpful to knock out a big chunk, make the picture a little more clear um, and the rate at which you want to lose a little more clear, too. Because how many times have we dieted somebody and they lose 15 or 20 pounds? And we're like, man, I thought you'd look a lot different. At I this thought point. that was going to be Maybe. a lot better. Yeah. Maybe we have more to lose, you know, and you don't always, especially initially in a fat loss period, have the luxury of being like, all right, we're going to remove a chunk of food and we're just going to wait for two weeks. Like there's a timeline, you know, and so you remove a bit of food and you're like, okay, that didn't get things moving. We're down one less week. Fuck, I, I should make a decision now and you remove a little more. And then if that doesn't get things moving and you're already early in the prep and kind of stressed out, you know. Mm -hmm. and what's nice too is having some uh 
like mini cuts, mini diets, cleanup diets, stuff like that throughout an off season with an athlete. So you can kind of gauge like, you know, that they respond to very small changes easily. And so you kind of have an idea with the person going into the prep. And I think that helps too. Yeah. I think one of the biggest things is like Paul was saying, like in a perfect world, like those little small changes every week and stuff. And it's just like consistent progression. I feel like those situations you see more in athletes that are very meticulous about everything they do. Um, you know, I've, I've worked with people on both ends of the spectrum, guys that like won't walk around a lot before going to do legs just because they're that meticulous about their leg training. And then I know, and then I have guys that will tell me things like, Oh, my mom cooked chicken today, but it falls in my chicken meal. And so I've worked with both ends of the spectrum and I can definitely see like that guy with who had his mom's chicken that night. I'm going to have to cut more food out because at the end of the day, he's not eating exactly what he needs to be doing. And then this guy on this hand is tracking everything perfectly. So it just, like we said, me and Paul were talking about it on Instagram. Like that's one thing I love about this. There's nothing set in stone. Like everybody's different, which is cliche as that sounds. And then also real quick, uh, I mean, also in a perfect world, it'd be nice too, you know, to like have weeks where people don't lose weight and you're just okay with it. You're like, okay, you know, rarely ever is a contest prep like this. Like, you're like, we have this many weeks, we have this many pounds to lose. And the second that doesn't go to plan, because somebody can not lose weight one week, you know, maybe they're just holding a little more water. And if you were to just wait it out for another week or two, you just see a three pound flush, you know? Mm -hmm. You just don't always have that luxury. <laughs> yeah. So on kind of like on the psychological side of things, how much do you put into that slow rate of loss weighing on people psychologically where they're they're maybe they're not seeing the changes They're They're 10 weeks into their prep. They're down 12 pounds. And like you guys said, you're like, man, we thought we'd look a lot different. They don't really think that they look a lot different. Maybe they, they really don't. Do you think that a, a faster rate of loss could lead to more psychological buy-in? Or do you see that the physiology of moving too fast, flattening out, losing muscle, outweighing the psychological buy-in? No, uh, definitely. I think I think that has a big role to do with people in prep is a lot of psychological. Like, they want to see themselves moving yep. fast. Um, but so if it's somebody I've prepped in the past, because I have guys that have been with me for years now, if it's somebody I've prepped in the past, and they start to get like that, I always just like, will take their current picture and then show it to them when they started. And I'm like, look at how much ground you made in these X amount of weeks. Yes, we're losing slowly, but you're making really good progress. Cause I think a lot of guys get caught up in those week to week changes and they forget what they looked like four weeks prior to that. And that could be a big change for some guys. And so psychologically, if, if I know it's working for the client and I know we're going to be on pace and everything, that's how I remind them to get back psyched back into things. And then if not, then I'll push them a little bit harder to, you know, just to, just to get their psych ready to keep pushing. Cause if I lose that mindset out of them and they think, and they start doubting themselves and stuff, then prep's going to be a lot harder. Oh yeah. I think it'd be uh, either, uh, they don't realize that that first 10 to 15 isn't going to be a whole lot of change versus that last 10 that comes off. You know, like yeah. once well, you knock off that first 
five, ten percent and body weight loss from then on, like one to two pounds is gonna look like five from the yeah, start up. For sure. I think it's what's interesting because with guys, a lot of times you can get that big initial drop, you know. And a lot of times with guys too, they could lose their first, like Camp said, ten or fifteen and not look much different because maybe they mostly lost visceral. And we've all seen that where a guy loses like 15 pounds, they still look pretty chubby, but now they can suck a vacuum in and they couldn't do a vacuum like eight weeks ago. Right. Yeah. But with else, um, a lot of times just in general, they don't have much to lose and a, a chick can lose like 10 pounds and they look in way leaner. Right. Or sometimes they can lose a half pound over a couple of weeks and you're like, man, visually that is crazy. So, but I think with females, that's where I have the largest issue of them getting impatient with not seeing the scale move as much. Yeah. A lot of self-doubt. Do you have experiences like that? Yeah, a ton. I, I work with a lot of uh, like general health females. I don't prep too many females. It just wasn't something that I was comfortable doing a lot of the time. You're a smart there's just man. Like a, Very smart man. <laughs> there's just like a select few that I do just because I know they're so meticulous about everything. Um, and it, you know, it makes things a lot easier, but, um, like on the general health side, like, yeah, like people will really like really focus on, on that scale and they just come to me on their check-in day and they're just discouraged cause they dropped a half pound that week and stuff like that. But like, like I said, even with them, like I'll go back, I'll screenshot their averages for them and say like, look, you're, you're consistently losing just because you didn't lose like day to day every single day doesn't mean you're not dropping. And like, even I did it the other day with a, a woman, she's been on like a lifestyle program for like 10 weeks and I took her pictures and she's only lost like three pounds, but looks like a completely different person. Yeah. yeah. And then she was like, Oh my God, I didn't even notice that. Like, like I didn't even realize that that was happening. You got, I think, gotta do this I think women, women really, they like the subjective or the kind of like the picture changes even more than they like the scale changes. They get really focused on the scale changes, in my opinion. And then when you show them the picture changes from week to week, it kind of alleviates some of those concerns. But I see a couple weeks of like looking <laughs> out on you. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe a couple weeks. So but if, if we're so staying Paul, on the topic, I got a question. Uh, oh, let's sorry. hit it. No, hit it. Uh, so. So, Paul, uh, you're really into training. and That's a lot of your research and stuff. So do you think some of these women, because like, so like I get women that come to me and they've never trained and I, you know, get them to just resistance train a little bit. Do you think a lot of the reason why they're not, their swings and weight aren't so much, but their body composition changes are so much has to do with like a woman's rate of gain of tissue versus like a male's? Um. Sometimes, I mean, especially, so do you mean when women are untrained or maybe yeah. uh, high? Oh, oh, like they're sure. untrained, barely trained. Because I remember there was this one experience, one of my very first clients when I started coaching, um, she was very overweight, like 190 pounds or something. And uh, for a while, I struggled to get progress photos from her. And eventually, you know, we're down like, you know, 10 pounds or something or five pounds but I get finally get some updated photos from her. I'm like, oh my God, you're a completely different person. And she was untrained. She was likely, you know, gaining some muscle with, during yeah, that process. Yeah. So, and then yeah, I that's what I feel like that. In general, when it comes to water retention and 
swings in, in water weight and things like that. So, yeah. And like, I always remind the women too, like about their menstrual cycles and stuff. Like, like you're having these constant peaks of estrogen and drops in estrogen and then another peak towards the end. So like, I'm like, there's weeks where you're going to be potentially holding more water than other weeks. You know, some weeks you might be more susceptible to fat loss than other weeks, just based on the way your hormones are moving every every week. For sure. That's something I started doing is on their little check-in sheet. I have them tell me, hey, um, let me know when your menstrual cycle hits. And then trying to almost sort of guess, even though it's not always perfect, where we're probably going to have our peak water retention and our lowest amount of water retention, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so depending on the woman, you'll see anywhere from like a two, maybe like a one, but like a two to 5% increase in water retention or a two to 5% increase in body weight just as a result of water retention from their cycle. So what I've started doing is I not only include the weekly average, but I'll include a monthly average for my female clients as well. So we can say, hey, listen, here's the weeks where, you know, we got that big spike, but look at your monthly average compared to your last week. And they kind of like to see those numbers come down over the month, even though there are those daily and weekly fluctuations. But if we do stay on the topic of kind of men versus women in dieting and, and contest prep, I'd like to hear your guys' opinion on some, some sex-specific differences that you notice, whether it be on the training side or the nutrition side, as a contest prep goes along. So, Dom, what do, you, what do you see from your female clients as we get into the later stages of a diet with their training and nutrition? Are there any things that you, any things that you have to change specifically, or do you kind of just keep it same all the way through? Uh, so I've noticed with women, they need bigger pushes. I think women need a bigger drop and, and I don't know if that has anything to do with like, like women, for example, have like a high prevalency of like hypothyroidism. A woman is a lot likelier to have hypo than a guy. Um, I don't know if maybe like there's a thyroid change in some of these women that's more aggressive than a man during dieting. Um, but I've always noticed that women need bigger pushes and, um, and even with the, the pushes, they need to do even more cardio. They just need a lot more burning, I've noticed, than men to make, like, the same amount of changes. It's really interesting because, like, you'll see, like, a woman's calories come down and sometimes they don't even move. No, I agree. And I've seen that a lot, too. And, uh, you know, I think it there's two potential reasons for it and I think just because you know like let's say that you take a male who's eating 3,000 calories a day and maintaining it that and you knock off three percent from their food that's 90 calories a day well let's say you take a female whose maintenance is 1800 a day and you knock off three percent from that and that's like you know around like 50 to 60 calories and you know it's the same thing when we're talking about body weight changes you know you take a male that's over 200 pounds they're losing at one percent a week you know that's it's big chunks just in absolute numbers that are going to be coming down versus like paul i know your bikini competitor that's like a hundred pounds and like five foot it's like oh you know we lose 0.6 pounds this week that that might be as good as losing like one and a half on a 200 pound plus male and i think that might be one of the reasons and then the other one which i think this it's 
probably the main reason is I think females are more adaptive just from a survival instinct, just from, you know, back in the day, you know, food's not available, you know, maybe their thyroid does downregulate so that they can withhold this body weight and hold body fat just to carry on survival and procreation and not need as much food because they don't know the next time they are going to get food, you know, or adaptive to, you know, less food and to that nature. And I think that might be part of the reason why that happens. Kinds of metabolic adaptations. Um, I think what it's interesting too, because I've noticed the same thing where a lot of times I like to err on a slightly more aggressive side than women than to, you know, be too conservative, pull food, increase cardio, but get nothing. You're like, oh man, we already know this is going to end pretty, pretty aggressive. And if I make a change and it brings nothing, then I got to make another change. And, you know, you might be on that slippery, slippery slope at that point where you feel like you're doing a lot, but not getting much. But also with women, sometimes I feel like if you're too aggressive, you just get those really weird points of, you know, maybe water retention or, you know, where you got to do a lot more to now relieve stress as well, you yeah. know, because <laughs> you push them so hard. Yeah. Yeah. I also wonder if it has anything to do with, because as a contest prep goes along and has metabolic adaptation starts to kick in, we do see that increase in, in mitochondrial efficiency to where like you walked a mile and it used to burn you a hundred calories. And now you walk a mile and it burns you 80 calories just because your body has become more efficient over the course of the diet. I wonder if because women are more type one muscle fiber dominant, greater concentration of mitochondria on an absolute sense compared to men. I wonder if there's an increase in that mitochondrial efficiency for women compared to men where they get this greater uh, spike in, in, in efficiency of how many calories it actually takes them. So I would say it's definitely multifactorial. Uh, Cam, thermic effect of the diet as well. Eating way less calories, you get far less thermic effect of the diet. So yeah. women. Do not have it easy when it I comes mean, to I mean, just weighing growth. less, too. I mean, there's... Yeah, weighing less in general. Yeah, there's still an entire uh, like set of components to metabolic adaptation we're not even sure about, right? Like, we're, we're like, okay, this percentage we can probably give to low body weight. This percentage, lower thermal food. This percentage, maybe we give it hormone downregulation. And then... They're estimating there's still a mismatch between estimated BMR or RMR and what they're actually burning. Yeah, I think the women's body is freaking tricky for a contest prep. Like they're the oh, ultimate. Yeah, like I'm surviving everything. Like, yeah, they're they're, they're tricky. Well, I think that's uh, I think that's a big reason why a lot of women end the contest prep in super low calories like no matter who they're working with like yeah no i you know i've 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 seen it across the board i've had clients come to me with from other you know coaches and they're eating 800 calories 20 weeks out and, and like that that happens a lot more than we think it happens and then these women are trying to compete every year and oh. their bodies their bodies cannot handle that they try and to compete twice in a year that's crazy and two, Dom, you know how I do or how we do like cardio based on calories and not time, yeah. right? Um, so I know uh, a lot of coaches will base it off of time and you'll hear all these stories of women talking about like, oh, I was doing, 
you know, two and a half, three hours of cardio a day, when in reality, you know, a male doing 2,000 calories of cardio or like 1,000 a day versus a female doing 1,000 a day, that might be an hour difference with the same intensity or something within that nature that just causes their cardio to have to be way higher just because they weigh less. Yeah. Dom, I don't know if you follow um, Bill Campbell out of, I think he's out of USF. He's got the physique lab out of USF. He posted something, I believe it was yesterday, maybe they just shared it yesterday in the group chat, about uh, kind of a case study that they were running where they were looking at males and females in that post-contest window. And they found that males um, regained muscle mass, something like fourfold. It was like 40% versus 10% against compared to women. Um I'd be, I'd be interested to kind of hear what you think or what you might attribute that that difference to there. I think well, Paul, what was what was his speculation? Well, his speculation, and I sort of agreed with it as well in some way. In some ways, um, was that uh, while dieting down in some of the case studies, women tended to lose less muscle to begin with over the dieting period. And so, therefore, their regain after going back into maintenance or a surplus would be smaller. But well, I guess high. Thoughts, but I'll let Kuza, Dominic, hit it. No, that, that's really interesting. Um, so, what a reason why we think males gain as much back versus females? Um, I think it has to do with like how Paul said a little bit about that women probably don't lose as much muscle mass as a male. Um, and I think also, too, I think more so it just has to do with size of the male. You know, if you're coming into contest prep and you're, you have a, a significant amount of muscle mass, when you're feeding back up, you're going to get back to that muscle mass pretty quickly versus like a female. I think that more so has to just do with overall tissue on a female versus a male. Um, and I haven't checked out the study, but how did they... Uh... What did they use to test, I guess, their lean body mass? Uh, I think they measured it with DEXA. So my my thinking was that the they're not actually, they're, yeah, they're not actually measuring p- like lean body mass in the form of skeletal muscle mass regain. The men just have a greater absolute amount of muscle mass, more storage capacity of glycogen and water, and the DEXA scan is recording that as lean body mass compared to women. But I would I would think that his his theory is definitely still valid. Um, but yeah, that might be confounding some of the results there. And uh, I think you definitely have a point because I think we saw that with one of Wilson's studies where he did keto and high carb yeah. or whatever, and then he refed the keto group and blew and up. They got the huge on DEXA scan. Yeah, because their glycogen storage just are empty. Just went through <laughs> the roof. Yeah, it's post show rebound where everybody thinks they're gaining twenty pounds of muscle. Yeah. Everyone hates on that guy, but I think he's the best in the game when it comes to like manipulating data. Making himself look smart. He's like he's got to be the best at it. So there's got to be some kudos right there. He's a scumbag, but he's a somewhat intelligent scumbag. You researchers that I guess made it if you want to call that making it. But uh he's a guy so, in Florida, right? I th- yeah. Yeah. So I think uh when it comes to body composition measurements I, I'm not sure what they use because I, I just looked at the post. I didn't find the study or whatever. Um, that That is a valid statement also. But I think a lot of body composition measures are bad at estimating visceral fat. And we know guys tend to hold more of that. And a lot of times when 
uh, male starts a fat loss diet, that's one of the first things to go. And then when they gain weight post diet, it's one of the first things to come back. Yep. And so you might be getting a skewed ratio of muscle to fat gain there, depending on how body composition is measured or estimated. Um, and then also, I, I do agree with Bill Campbell, though, because in my experience, it does seem like, at least visually, women retain muscle a little better in a dieting period. And especially if they're enhanced, sometimes it almost seems like they recomp or grow at certain points of their diet or that their weight might just stay the same for like four weeks. But then you look back and you're like, you're total you're, recomp. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then maybe mid contest prep, you pull them off certain compounds and then all of a sudden that's where you see like body weight kind of drop three or four pounds, you know, over a few weeks or whatever. But, um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of potential stuff going on there. In addition to y'all's comments on just having more to lose in general. And then I think when you look at women too, um, this is more my own kind of mental masturbation, but Ooh. versus, uh, based on actual fact, but I mean, think about it, like women in general, um, they have very low amounts of, I think what, what do men have 20 times more testosterone or something like that on average? 10 times. Huge. 10 times. Except Ryan. Yeah. 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 So, except Ryan. Low blow. Uh, low yeah. blow to my non-functioning testicles. Something huge, right? <laughs> but yet they're still able to build oh. muscle and maintain muscle. So they're like, I guess almost better in a way that they're able to gain and build muscle without a certain anabolic component, right? Maybe through yeah. other mechanisms and things like that. So just in general, if they can build it without this anabolic component, now you throw that anabolic component in there or you just put them in a less favorable circumstance, they're probably already adapted in some way just to better hold mass. That's what I'm saying. Females are fucking neat. <laughs> like they're cool as shit looking at, you know, how they adapt and stuff. Because I know Paul, we've seen it. I'm sure Ryan, Dom, you've seen it too. Females work capacity through just an individual training day can have such a higher threshold for, you know, high performance and not, you know, having fatigue accumulation digressing that just I mean, in a single day. Smaller lower absolute strength always faster with recovery can handle significantly more volume and can recover faster from so that I'm saying, volume. If and females were our size, their work capacity is all the way up here. Yeah. yeah so if, if you look at, our if you look size, at like, screwed. <laughs> yeah, if you look at like the Chinese Olympic weightlifting team and how they program for their women compared to men, they've really kind of been ahead of this for quite some time in terms of how they separate this stuff out where the men are doing one or two a days and they've got their women doing three a day sessions and, Look at Chinese women in terms of Olympic weightlifting and how successful they are. They dominate. I mean, dude, women, they are meant to carry our genetic code. Like, even when it comes to steroid use and, you know, you could compare it to birth control or whatever, right? Like, you give a guy steroids for X amount of years or X amount of cycles and the recovery of their natural system, it could take six months, it could take a year, it could take two years, it may never come back. But, like, the women... uh hormone i guess systems of women they just bounce back way better you can you know take them off birth control give them a few months they start producing estrogen again you give them anabolic yeah. steroids you give them a few months after that they're they're they've reestablished their foundation as a female like 
But Dom made a good point in terms of like the adaptive nature of the female thyroid and how women are tend to be more prone to being thyroid. So I wonder if your theory about exogenous hormones remains true for when you introduce thyroid hormone to women. Yeah. Dom? I, uh, one thing I like to do with women later on in a contest prep is reintroduce some T3 or T4. And only because I know that they may have started at a lower end to begin with. And we all know that the thyroid adapts throughout the whole contest prep and reintroducing a little bit of like hormone replacement dosage. I see it night and day. They just like the next week, all of a sudden they're just like back on a furnace. Yeah. And, uh, oh, sorry. I don't want to no, go. Oh, okay. Have you noticed the difference in response between males and females regarding using thyroid medications? Like do women, have you seen that maybe they handle it better, they maintain muscle mass better, or just respond better to it than males? I think I think females respond better to thyroid hormone than males do, and I don't. I, I I could guess maybe one way, maybe because if the male is using a lot of different compounds, that might have something to do with it as well, um, and then introducing thyroid hormone might not affect them as much, but. I do notice a lot that women that use thyroid hormone later in prep uh, have a much significant better, like uh, a benefit out of it versus a male. What about uh, when you're comparing, I guess, their bounce back and, you know, rebound when they're coming off those things? Have you noticed any uh, differences and one being greater than the other? So one way I'll do things with women that if they're using thyroid hormone towards the end of prep, they finish prep off. I keep them on during reverse and taper off to get them because that's where a lot of that huge weight gain swing comes. If you pull out this, you know, 24 micrograms, 25 micrograms you're using every day. And then all of a sudden you, you know, bump them up 10, 12% in calories out of nowhere. They're a lot more susceptible to fat gain there because their metabolic rate just dropped because they're no longer taking this, this T3. So like with, with everybody that I coach that uses thyroid hormone at the end, I keep them on through a few weeks of their reverse and taper off. And then it takes a couple of days and then their thyroid's right back to thing, uh, right back to, so, you know, function. so you like to taper instead of just pulling it out completely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I think, uh, just from a theoretical standpoint, that makes a lot of sense too, because we know that thyroid is responsive to calories. And I believe uh, I've seen some people say carbohydrates in particular. So you're already getting that food back to a it's good like place. All the way back thyroid is in a better position to rebound. So like when I rebound too, um, I'll pick one energy source. Like if I'm going to start them up, I'll start them up on either carbs or I'll start them up on either fats. Initially, right out the gate, I'll just add carbs back to their diet because that's what most competitors want anyways. So they're going to adhere a lot better. And I'll add carbs back initially and then slowly start to add the fats in after, you know, you kind of get out of that window of huge swings after a show. Man, I feel like this is about to turn into like women versus men, like podcasts <laughs> or whatever. But I've got... Uh, this is something that I think more recently, um, I've started to notice, but have you seen a difference with, uh, largely how men and women respond to either dieting or reversing on fat versus carbs as a preferred, um, 
either to add or reduce calories with? So a way I'll approach that is through their contest prep. If I see that they were, you know, better on protein and fats in their meals as they were coming down, I'll reverse them that way and add the carbs back in later. If they're like me personally, I diet a lot better on lower fats. And if I'm coming down on carbs and protein and low fats, when I go to add back food for myself, I'll add back carbs initially and then start to add the fat in slowly. So whatever they're responsive to during their prep down, mm-hmm. I'll feed them up with. That's how that's how I approach their reverse diets. It makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd speculate that women do a lot better with increasing their fats off the start, and then, yeah, like I'd, you said, men do a lot better with increasing carbohydrates. I agree. Yeah. Now, uh, cool. I have so another question, real quick, about the thyroid thing, because um, I've only used thyroid hormones with the, just like one or two of my athletes, and it's something that I do want to keep increasing knowledge on to have just as a tool in case. Um, but have you noticed, because, you know, if you take T3 or any thyroid medication, you're, you're suppressing it at that point. There's a threshold. You're either, you got your natural production or you got exogenous hormone coming in. Have you found that uh, no matter whether the dose is 25 micrograms or higher, no matter if the dose is different or not, is the rebound is easy to come back on uh, with a high dose versus lower dose. So, oh, go ahead, Paul. Oh, no. I, so basically what you're getting, because I think we hear about sometimes coaches are like, oh, I heard this coach put this girl on 120 micrograms, 150 micrograms of T3, and people will be like, oh, man, you're going to blow out our thyroid, you know? Because, yeah, theoretically, you'd think like, you know, if 25 micrograms shuts you down, then 25 is going to have the same I, chance of doing damage as 100. I think, uh, I, think, I think thyroid shutdown is a very misused term. It's it, like I, I've read a lot about thyroid use. I have hypothyroidism myself, so I'm on meds already. So I've read a lot on thyroid, and I think that's a very misused terminology, saying that you can shut down your thyroid. Shutting down your thyroid means your your TSH is zero. Like, it's not even working. Mm. And I've never seen that with any post-contest uh, blood work with people that have used thyroid hormone. People, I think, be, because we know that shutdown for, you know, androgens in, in the male body is uh, a little more drastic and I think easier to accomplish that everybody just assumes every other system is the same way. Like, oh, if you inject insulin, your your body will just stop making insulin. Uh, it'll probably just make less during that time period that you inject. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think with the thyroid too, things can be a little more complex. Like you could introduce some thyroid, but I guess your body might may still recognize it's suboptimal and, and still continue to make some basically. Yeah. Right. So, so when I was trying to find my perfect dosing, that's exactly what was happening. I'm, I was taking thyroid meds, but my TSH was still pumping out thyroid to try to make up for whatever was needed to be used. And then, um, like Dr. Uh, Dean St. Mark, do you guys know who that is? He was with trained by JP and all those guys. 
Yep. Uh, he posted on thyroid shutdown and how big of like a myth it really is. Like in his in his terms, and you know he he broke it down a lot. And I, I read up on all the research he posted about it, and it made a lot of sense. It it made a lot of sense to me. Uh, one thing that he does like with people that are using things like he always tells them like, look, you need to know where your baseline thyroid is. So he tells them if you're using stuff, stop and go get your blood work done in four days and you'll see your thyroid is working again just so you can see where you at our baseline. Cause I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not exactly sure what the half-life is and the active life on, on thyroid meds are, but he said that you just take four days off of it and go get your blood work done. And that's where you'll know. That's where you will be at naturally for the most part. I think that's interesting. I, I, I have heard that um, thyroid hormone function or rebound or whatever does tend to happen pretty quick. I think I've heard up to a couple weeks, a few weeks, but that's interesting that it could bounce back as quickly as, you yeah, know, I'll send you it when we get off. Yeah, I think a lot of the shutdown stuff, too, is just from people being assholes with their diet post-show. And, yep. like, whether you're exactly. taking thyroid meds or not, like, if you're an asshole with your diet, like, you're going to get fat. <laughs> I, I think it's that skate. It's that scapegoat that everyone's looking for. It's like I came out of my show, period. I I'm hopped fat off all the because thyroid. my coach put me on thyroid I ate, medication. like, a piece of shit, and I gained all this weight, and it's because of the thyroid. It's not because of, you know, my post-show behaviors. I have no idea, but... you. I, I guess one would assume, though, if you were taking well beyond super physiological doses, that you could cause complete shutdown. Probably. Or like, some temporary shutdown, or some damage, at least. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure I would even throw permanent out there. I think that the body is a lot less fragile than people think. I don't know if you could truly shut it down, even with the wild, wildest of dosages. Like Paul said, I think it has so much to do with people think about like hpta access shutdown from using tests and they just relate it to hormones and taking yeah. stuff like like you said about the pancreas like your pancreas isn't going to stop making insulin because you're using insulin <laughs> yeah yeah very true all right so let's kind of transition over we're talking about the end of diet let's get let's go back to kind of just before this period let's talk about peaking strategies so i wanted to pick your brain and see what kind of your preferred peaking strategies are so take me through the thought process you've got an athlete that's maybe sitting at about two weeks out uh we'll start with males let's say they're right in the right position what goes through your mind on picking a peaking strategy for that individual yeah so um one thing i always do with everyone uh is i'll lock their water intake so that water intake is the same every single day, at least two weeks out. I try to do it like three weeks out. I tell them, look, what, what do you drink every day? They tell me what it is. I say, I add a little bit to it. And I say, that's it. You cannot drink more or less. Just make it this. We need this to be a constant. So it's no longer a variable. It's just a constant now. Um, and then depending on like how lean they are and how dry they look, um, That'll that'll depend on like if I'm going to use like um, like hydrochlorothiazide with them or if I'm going to, um, you know, try to do a little bit of salt manipulation with them. But for the most part, a peak week with like, let's just take like a lean, like a, a very in shape guy. He's he's really lean. Uh, the week of I'll start carving up and increasing water slowly um, about like Wednesday if they're competing on Saturday and then just depending on how big they are will depend on how long I carve them up for. 
but for the most part, like Wednesday, I'll start carving up and then they'll be drinking water, increasing water. But on Wednesday, they'd start their diuretic and then I'd keep the diuretic in at the same time every day. So like if they if they took hydrochlorothiazide at 6 p.m. on Wednesday, they took it 6 p.m. on Thursday, they took it 6 p.m. on Friday and then Saturday morning, 99 percent of the time they don't even need it. So that's one way I do like their and then their water all throughout that is is constant. And then Friday night, they're still drinking a little bit because a diuretic's not going to work if you're not drinking anything. And I think that's one big thing a lot of people do wrong is they take a diuretic and just cut out water completely, all fluids completely. And I believe and I know that. Or go ahead. Uh, and then like Saturday. So Saturday and the days leading up that they're using the uh, the diuretic, they're drinking Pedialyte with every meal. They're drinking about like three to four ounces, again, depending on how big they are, with every meal. And then Saturday, that is the fluid they're drinking. They're not drinking water. They're drinking Pedialyte instead. And uh, I've seen it. It's I've been I've been using this kind of with, you know, variances and, and people. But for the most part, using this and every guy I've been with now has comes out drier than they've ever been and catching a pump pre pre getting on stage with with no problem at all and it's because they're hydrated even though they're on a diuretic they're hydrated i guess that would make sense too because you're you're trying to flush these things out of you know certain parts of the body right and if you're not putting something in while your vital organs are probably going to pull it from other places such as the muscle right like you, you yeah. might flatten out um versus like if you're putting it in, there's enough to get distributed to where it needs to go, but you're still, that diuretic is still acting to flush out, I guess, uh, you know, what's in the plasma or whatever like that. I'm assuming yeah, so like, it's a process. Yeah, exactly. So one thing I like about um, hydrochlorothiazide is there's no trianthamine in it, like diazide. I probably said that wrong, but there's no potassium sparing diuretic paired with it. And a lot of people think like, oh, this is my thoughts, at least. A lot of people think you need to have the potassium sparing because potassium is important for your heart and things like that. And also muscle contractions. We have, you know, our pumps and everything. But that's why I keep Pedialyte in the mix the entire time through. And then I've noticed, too, that hyperkalemia with di diazide actually could cause water retention. So if they're carving up on, like, potatoes they might be increasing, you know, potassium levels too high and they might, you know, cramp or, not, or they might like cramp from lack of sodium. Uh, they might crack. Uh, they might um, not get a pump because of things like that. And I've noticed guys get really watery when they're having too much diazide and not enough water and too much potassium leading up to that. So this past year, I stopped using di diazide and only used the thiazide part of it and um i've noticed just a world of difference i think that's interesting because uh i've asked for instance broderick about different diuretics or whatever and i think a lot of people go with the diazide because they feel it might be safer yeah and, and uh I was, you know asking broderick about these other ones and he's like well they're also more effective like they do what they're they're dangerous because they do yeah. what it's supposed to do like lasix <laughs> you know uh, I've never um, used like diuretics like Lasix before. 
Um, I had a, a question about those uh, loading days with the food. Um, so I guess in a perfect world, because, you know, sometimes let's say they don't fill out that Wednesday, Thursday, and you got to really feed them hard Friday. But in a perfect world, how would you determine, I guess, their loading and, you know, what what's their biggest day of food? Uh, so I would usually do their biggest day of food um, like Thursday. And then I can gauge Friday to see how much more they need. And then Saturday is really at the point where it's like pump up food. So like Thursday, I'll feed them the most, most likely. And then Friday morning when they wake up and send me pictures, I can gauge more and see like, okay, you filled out, but we could probably do a little bit more, but you don't need too much at this point. But one thing I like about using hydrochlorothiazide with this whole situation is they're not as prone to water retention from the carbs because they're just constantly sure, flushing stuff moving. out. Yeah. You almost have a more accurate picture to gauge off of. Yeah, big time. And when you are picking those numbers to have them carve up on, do you have any like grams per kilogram, grams per pound that you use, or do you kind of just base it off previous refeeds or what you know about the athlete? So I, I pre I I usually base it off previous refeeds because I like to do my refeeds over days, not just one day. So I get a good picture for their peak week. Um, so like if if a guy carbs up, you know, refeeds him 500 grams of carbs two days in a row. And then, you know, that day later, I, I always make them send me a picture just to see what they look like after a refeed. And then when it comes to their peak week, I say, OK, 500 grams of carbs each time did this to him. But he's leaner now, so I'm sure I could use a little bit more. And then I kind of have that safety net, like I said, with the diuretic. And leading into that Wednesday, what kind of dietary or what kind of nutrition strategies are you using? Are you hitting like a bunch of consecutive low days and then trying to catch that super compensation wave or is it kind of just normal dieting days and then you just so it, your it all numbers? depends on how they're flowing if they're flowing like pretty well through it all i'll just keep things the same and then just kind of just you know refeed them just to get their glycogen up and get them like nice and full but if there's somebody that like needs a little bit more of a push like that um i'll try to just do i'll do a bunch of low days and then try to just you know ride that super compensation like train throughout the rest of the week yeah. so is it more for and in those individuals to get a super compensation effect or do you feel like hey you have just a little bit left to lose maybe we can just scrape a little more. uh it's it's more so like trying to scrape off a little bit more because if i can get that little bit more off then you know potentially they could look better yeah. Now, how how about on the female side of things? What what changes when working with a female as opposed to a male? I, I usually will use more fats in their load. I won't use as much uh, as much carbs as a male. Um, I use fats and carbs with the male because we need to we need to refuel you know intramuscular triglycerides too because that adds fullness to the muscle. But um, with females, I use more heavier fats than carbs they're still getting carbs but like we talked about muscle mass wise they don't have a ton of glycogen to have to be stored in these in this, these muscles so with with using the fats it i and i noticed like that works a lot better in the whole big picture i feel like females just diet a lot better on fats yep absolutely i'm noticing not that agree with my girlfriend right now too i uh, have you used other meat 
strategies or you want Okay. Paul, yeah. you're breaking up. You're breaking uh, up. Can you hear yeah. me now? Yep. Okay. Um, how do you feel about other peaking strategies or have you had the opportunity to test some out, you know, like such as front loading or maybe just trying to get somebody ready a little early and just reversing to the show? Uh, yeah, so I've I've done where I've reversed them into the show before. Um, I've never tried front load with a client before, though. Um, I just wasn't comfortable doing it, and I don't want to take that chance. Like with somebody else's prep, I'd rather take it on my own. Um, but I've done the I've done where they've been ready before, like really ready before, and just kind of fed them right into the show, and they just showed up on show day, like you know, nicely, um, and everything just worked out really well. Oh, so it was a good experience. Yeah, no, they were they were dry and everything. Uh, it, just I did kind of the same water kind of thing with them. Still, direct. their feet was going up, and they still they looked unbelievable. So there was Getting no tight. like loading at the back end of it. It was just pretty much food straight, same. It end. was pretty much food straight, and then morning of like you know just your fast carbs and pump up stuff, and yeah. they were fine. They were ready to go. I think um, with that reversing strategy, you get more of a predictable filling out because it's over a longer time span. So you've got 14, 17 days to basically fill them out and you can get a lot more predictable results from day to day as opposed to throwing a lot at someone and saying, all right, the next morning, what's it look like? All right, let's adjust, yeah. let's adjust, let's adjust. I've never reversed somebody into a show, but just observationally reversing you know, other people that are really lean and seeing myself reverse, um, I feel like too, before sometimes even before you even get somebody back into necessarily maintenance, you just see a life to their feet. You gotta move your mic closer to your face. Um did you get that? Do I need to repeat that? Yeah, something he, about life said, coming back to that. Uh, he said <laughs> yeah, even if you don't get their like, calories back up to maintenance, he's found that they kind of just get that more like healthier, like they're just coming back alive, like oh they, those yeah, muscles oh, yeah, don't look died in the physique like throughout a reverse dieting process um that you may not necessarily see with just refeeding somebody you know yeah. um if they're a core uh based off those two approaches and what you've seen like in a perfect world would you prefer one over the other like would you prefer to reverse them do you like the look better or do you feel like you can get a comparable look with both and it doesn't matter it's just whatever the situation I think I could get a comparable look with both. Um, I would, I, I still would lead towards more like the more traditional peak week okay. rather than the reverse. Uh, that's just my personal opinion. The guys that I have reversed into shows were guys that did a show and then had a show like three weeks later. Mm. And then, so like they were in shape, did the show, went through the first kind of peak week I did. And then I said, okay, like, look, let's try to come in bigger this time. Like you're, you're peeled. You know, your, your striated glutes, your everything. Let's just try to come in a little bit bigger. So then we took that approach like that with the reverse coming in. Right on. Cool. All right. I think we are coming up on that hour mark. We want to be respectful of Dominic's time. We know he's a busy man. Dominic, where can the people find you if they want to hit you up for coaching? Where do they apply? Where do they find you on Instagram? All that just, social media uh, nonsense. So at Team Kuza and then uh, Team and then K-U-Z-A. Right on. Paul, let them know. Let the people know. Leave them with some wisdom. 
Where? Korean Jesus say, <laughs> "Stay girthy." Not, hey, oh, dude, Kuzma, nice. man, that was uh, that was great, dude. Really appreciate yeah. you coming Thanks on. Thanks for having me. Seriously, yeah. love to Thanks, have you man. again. I know we still had some uh, a couple questions left over, so if Dom, if Dom will join us again, maybe we'll make this a regular thing. Oh, whenever you guys want. All right, Cam, you're a piece of shit. You don't get to say anything. Just sit there and be quiet. Yeah, like that. All right, guys, that's going to wrap us up for the day. Another episode of the Gifted Performance Podcast. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for watching. As always, like, comment, subscribe, the whole shebang, and you know what to do. Cam, what do they do?